0: Hello, and welcome back to Catching Up on Capitol Hill, a series in which we discuss the latest in tax legislation and in tax policy. I'm your host, John Gimigliano. If you tuned in last week, we asked a pretty straightforward question in that episode. The question was, what did we learn from the negotiation and enactment of the rescue bill that might inform our understanding of how the recover legislation, likely to move later this year, might play out? We care, of course, because that bill is where we expect to see a large tax title, including at least some of the tax increases we've seen proposed in the Biden tax plan. But something I said last week prompted a few questions. Specifically, what did I mean when I said that in some ways, the shape of this coming democratically written recover bill will be influenced by the Republican written TCJA and the overall experience of writing and enacting that law? Well, that is a good question and that's our topic for today. The question is, what did we learn from the enactment of the TCJA that will influence how the coming recover is developed? To answer that question, we've got our expert duo of Jennifer Gray and Carol Coolish with us. So, Carol, before we get into the specifics here, do you agree with the overall premise that there are precedents that can be set by one party in enacting a piece of legislation that can either be controlling or at least relevant to the other party in developing its own legislation?
1: I agree with your general premise that we can look at major tax bills that were enacted in the past on a partisan basis to inform our expectations as to what might happen with a future major tax bill that's likely to be partisan. So I agree that there are things we can learn from the Republican experience with the TCJA that may be instructive as to what might happen as the Democrats put together a recovery package. But I also think there are some things about the TCJA experience that aren't terribly relevant to what might happen with the recovery package. And personally, I'm hesitant to describe what happened with the TCJA as controlling or presidential. So yes and no.
0: Okay, that's fair. Look, I'm not saying that this is ironclad. It's just a question we're asking. I just kind of look at it is prior to the TCJA, and I think part of the problem is here is we as a tax community overlearned the lessons of nineteen eighty-six. And so a whole generation or generations of tax professionals said eighty-six is the only way major tax legislation, especially anything labeled as tax reform, can be done. And therefore anything that comes thereafter must look like eighty six. And I think the TCJA blew up so many of those preconceptions in so many ways. And Now, the question is, do we have these other understandings that may or may not be relevant in terms of how tax legislation gets done in the future? I guess is what I'm getting at. So I guess your point is maybe, (laughs) which is fair. All right, then, Jennifer, let me ask you, can you think of something that maybe was a precedent set by the TCJA, maybe novel in the TCJA, that you think is relevant in the development of this year's possible tax bill?
2: if we assume that this tax bill will go in a reconciliation process, which is another discussion. But if we make that assumption, then I think a huge one was the fact that the Republicans figured out when they did the TCJA that there was a process whereby they could do two reconciliation bills that involve tax in one year by taking advantage of the fact that you could do one in one fiscal year and one in another fiscal year, and the fact that they could do that in one calendar year, if that makes sense. So I think just this idea that the Democrats knew that they had the ability to pass the bill, they just passed through reconciliation, and then move on and have the opportunity to do another reconciliation bill in the same calendar year. And I'm not sure prior to the TCJA to what extent folks had really focused on that ability
0: on the outside looking in, it seems obvious. Well, you got fiscal years are different than calendar years. So why couldn't you use the fiscal years to do two reconciliation bills in the same calendar year? But I think the point you're saying that was kind of novel back in 2017 was, yes, that's true. But we were sort of doing a backwards looking budget slash reconciliation on that first one. So we were already well into the fiscal year when they then sort of went back and did the budget. And that is the part that was kind of novel. Do I have that right, Jennifer?
2: Yes, at least in recent decades, now something may have been different back in the 70s or 80s, but at least in recent decades, Congress had been passing a budget that they used to create a reconciliation bill in the normal process of time, i.e., They would do that and pass that budget for a fiscal year and create that reconciliation bill for that fiscal year prior to the fiscal year starting. And so this idea, as you said, of the backward looking passage of a budget just to create a reconciliation vehicle, not for the purposes necessarily of actually doing the budget for spending sake and the other reasons you do a budget. I think that was somewhat novel.
0: I agree with you. I think that's an excellent example of something that the TCJA showed us how something could be done. That At least it was maybe a failure of imagination, but I didn't see as having been done or I didn't think about it prior to that. All right, Carol, how about you? Looking back now, the lessons learned from the TCJA, can you think of something that you might view as relevant in terms of how things might play out this year?
1: Yeah, I'm just going to take this to a more global level. Jennifer was talking about the particulars of reconciliation process, but just more globally to remark that with the TCJA, we saw major changes to the tax code being made on a purely partisan basis. No Democrats voted for that bill, which resulted in, again, major changes to tax policy. And I think now we're looking at a situation where we've got Democrats controlling the White House and both chambers of Congress, and we could well see a situation where there's major changes in tax policy that are made on a partisan basis, possibly with no Republican support. Biden's hoping he might get some, but there's a good chance that that this could be the flip of TCJA and there may be no support from Republicans. So I think we're seeing this pattern just consistent with the changing politics of major tax policy changes being made on a partisan basis. Not that it hasn't happened before, but it does when there are massive changes in the tax code, it does lead to some volatility or lack of stability in the tax code when you can have major changes made in 2017 and then some of those changes undone and moves in the other direction, potentially in 2021, because obviously the parties have very different priorities. So you can see the pendulum swing back and forth. So I would just say that as a global level, which leads to some of these other issues about whether they use reconciliation or whether Democrats change the filibuster rules, for example, in order to be able to move legislation through the Senate, given their slim majority.
2: I think an interesting part of that as well is this idea of if you do not have to get bipartisan support, don't end up with bills that move toward the middle because you have to keep your entire caucus together. So, I mean, one aspect of that, it may give various factions within the two parties more power, i.e., you know, maybe the progressives have more say because they have to keep all those folks on board with a Democratic bill like the flip with the Republicans, keeping the very conservative members on board. It could really influence what's in the bill as well. I mean, just the gritty details of the policy. It's very interesting.
0: Fundamentally, I agree very much with your observation here, Carol, look, I grew up in the tax policy world being told the only way one could do tax reform is on a bipartisan basis. It was far too risky for any party to risk going it alone. So it would have to be done. The analogy people always use was Thelma and Louise style with Republicans and Democrats in the car going over the cliff together was the only way it could be done. And I think the TCJA showed us not necessarily in the end politically risky to do that, but at least theoretically it was done on a partisan basis, and it looks like we may see history repeat itself this year. Democrats do get their way. Okay, Jennifer, what else do you have in your mind that the TCJA may have told us about this coming tax bill?
2: Going back to the idea of whether this bill goes through reconciliation and assuming it would, I think another thing we really saw a lot in TCJA, it wasn't unique there. We've seen it before with Bush tax cuts and the Affordable Care Act reconciliation bill as well. But, you know, I think another thing is this idea of really the minority party who opposes the bill really going to the parliamentarian and raising objections that the bill violates the various requirements of the Reconciliation Act and using that a lot. We saw it with the bill that just passed within the last few weeks with the Republican going to the parliamentarian and the result being that the minimum wage provisions had to come out. We saw it with the TCJA and that it does not even have a table of contents or a title. It's actually not the TCJA. It's the Reconciliation Act of blah, 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 you know, about the 20-word title. It just seems that it was used a lot in TCJA, and I think folks probably learned from that the extent to which uh, those bird rules and other reconciliation rules can be used.
0: I think that's a good point, Jennifer. Look, the parliamentarian has always been involved in bills done under reconciliation i think it's reasonable to say that maybe there was a more active involvement of the parliamentarian in some of the things you mentioned like the stripping of the table of contents and the title from the bill than maybe we've seen before and so you just question: do we now see that dynamic play out yet again if we in fact do get a reconciliation bill this year
2: oh. right it just feels like it was ramped up a bit i mean what sort of outside impression
0: yeah right
1: Jennifer, I think that that's an excellent point. And certainly, if they go the reconciliation route, I could see there being similarities in terms of the Republicans raising parliamentary challenges and the Democrats trying to structure their bill to meet all of the arcane requirements of reconciliation. But that may be one reason why we end up in a different place potentially. There's been a lot of talk by Democrats recently. Even Biden has mentioned it, as well as Manchin, of perhaps changing the filibuster rules and going to talk. Talking filibuster with the hope that perhaps by going to those rules, they could pass something through the Senate ultimately, maybe with some delay, but ultimately pass something through the Senate with a majority vote without having to deal with all of those procedural hurdles, which do present a lot of design issues for the bill, and not just for the tax title, but for the non-tax portions of this bill as well. So it's possible that to avoid those issues, they end up going a different route. A
0: very good point. And that whole question of the filibuster, trust us, that's an episode we've got somewhere in the future. I mean, it's unavoidable to talk about these potential changes to the filibuster and the reconciliation rules. So it's an absolutely valid point. And sometimes the lesson learned from the prior bill isn't let's do that again. Sometimes the lesson learned is we're not doing that again. So it's a a good point, Carol. All right. What else do you have, Carol, in terms of things we may have learned from the TCJA?
1: Well, I'm gonna go back to your previous podcast with Jen and Tom and bring up the fact that I think one of the things we should learn is to watch what happens in the senate in the tcja what we ended up with ultimately was closer to what the senate produced than what the house started with and i think we could well end up in the same situation with a build back recovery process that even though the house will start the process and even though the margins are very close in the house as well and the senate just the need to get Every single Democrat on board, if there's no Republican support, and then rely on Harris's tie-breaking vote gives each senator tremendous power over the substance of the bill. We may end up once again in a situation which is similar to what happened with the rescue bill as well, where you look at what the House did as the starting point, but what the Senate comes up with may end up being closer to what they ultimately agree to.
0: You're right. You know, you think of these in negotiation between the House and the Senate, maybe they meet somewhere in the middle. Not always, right? Because maybe it isn't a totally level playing field in terms of how these things get resolved. Good one. Well, look. Can I take an opportunity to have one of my observations? So here's one of my observations is that, again, over learning the lessons of 1986, perhaps, we believe that tax reform had to be revenue neutral, right? Because 86 was revenue neutral. So therefore, why wouldn't the next version of tax reform be revenue neutral? And of course, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act wasn't. In fact, I'm not sure it would have been possible to get the votes. Had it been revenue neutral, that it required some deficit spending to grease the gears of the process and get enough votes. So, coming back to this bill this year, really interesting question is going to be whether or not this reconciliation bill, if that's what it is, is deficit neutral or is it deficit positive? In other words, are we going to agree in budget reconciliation to add a trillion or two trillion or three trillion, who knows what the number is, to add to the deficit? And I think that's going to be a really important question in terms of how, of course, the bill is constructed, but also how the politics around it are going to shape. Because at some point, I do think there's a limit to the amount of tax increases that you have 50 votes for in the Senate. At some point, it's just going to be, you can't add another dollar of tax increases to help pay for it. And the only way to get it done after that is deficit financing it. So that is something that we learned, I think, in the TCJA and may be relevant in this context as well.
1: Let me pitch something in there. The it for this bill is a very different it than for the TCJA, because TCJA was just a tax bill. This is likely to be a big bill with significant non-tax components as well. So tax is one piece of a larger bill. It's not just a tax bill. Tax provisions are there to further other policies and to potentially offset
0: cost of other policies. Raising taxes to, in part, arguably to make the system better, but also in part to help offset the cost of what we assume to be infrastructure, but also other spending as well. Are there any others? Rack your brains. Anybody else have one?
1: One other thing we may see is, just like the TCJA, that the process with Build Back Better Recovery may move relatively quickly. I think part of that's due to the politics of both bills, given that they're being moved on a partisan basis, that there's an effort to get things done in the first half of the Congress before there can be any political changes and before election season ends up starting in earnest for the next round of congressional elections. So I think that it'll be a speedy process at some point, and we're not likely to see a lot in the way of statutory language. And as the bills develop, there may not be much time to react. Once you see technical descriptions from the Hill of the actual House bill and of the Senate bill, there might not be that much time for people to react. We may see budget proposals from the administration in the Green Book, maybe some point in May, perhaps, which will give us a little bit more clue. But in terms of statutory language, I think it could be the same kind of situation we're in in the TCJA, where we see things that are more conceptual, and then things start to move real quickly to the finish line.
0: But you sort of outline that as a bug of the system. I kind of see it as a feature, like a design feature, that in the TCJA anyway, I don't think there was a lot of interest in putting legislation out there for weeks or months for people to see, recognizing that history shows us that the longer it sits out there, the harder it is to get enacted. So I think if there is a lesson learned in terms of that, that it could be intentional that proposals released, legislative language released, we go to mark it up, and then we move it as quickly as we can just to make it easier to get done.
1: I don't disagree with that. I was just making the broader point. I think the politics drive the speed as well. But I do think that is another reason why for some proposals, they may prefer for them not to be lingering because it can cause things to fall apart. And it's also the reason why people need to be anticipating what they might be thinking of even before you see something, because by the time you see paper, it may be too late to really get in there, which, as you said, is in part
0: something that can be by design. All right, let's just flip this conversation around though for a second. Let's just go the other way quickly. Are there any things that were really important to the TCJA that we think either will not happen this time or could be the exact opposite of what happened. Are there any examples of anything you can see happening that way?
2: One major one is that, at least from what we're hearing, we could see a situation here which was different than the TCJA and that we could see a net increase on businesses to pay for potentially some tax decreases on the individual side, perhaps. You know, in the TCJA, there were almost sort of silos where you had the individual tax cuts and then you had the business tax cuts that were smaller and the overall tax increases on the international side that were on the business side. So they were sort of kept separate to some degree. I could see a lot more crossover perhaps in this bill coming up.
1: They're also likely to be in this bill tax increases on high income individuals and those increases aren't there just to raise revenue. They're there in part because of democratic policy concerns about equity, fairness, things of that nature. So from their perspective, it's not just raising revenue. Some of the tax increases are designed to achieve some of their broader
0: goals. Well, Carol, since you mentioned raising revenue, let me give one last possible TCJA precedent for today before we wrap up. Take your mind back, if you can, to the distant days of 2017 and to the legislative process throughout the year that ultimately culminated in enactment of the TCJA. You may recall that a phrase on the tip of the tongue back then was dynamic scoring. You forgot about dynamic scoring, didn't you? Well, that's to be forgiven because despite seemingly talking about it nonstop prior to the TCJA, we've hardly heard about it at all since. Quick rewind or remind on what dynamic scoring is. Let's see how the good people of the Tax Policy Center describe dynamic scoring on their website. Here's what they say. Quote, tax spending and regulatory policies can affect incomes, employment, and other broad measures of economic activity. Dynamic analysis accounts for those macroeconomic impacts, while dynamic scoring uses dynamic analysis in estimating the budgetary impact of proposed policy changes. Okay, look, that was probably written by economists for economists. So let me describe dynamic scoring in a simpler way for my simpler mind. Republicans have long argued that tax cuts partly can pay for themselves. No serious economist in 2017 that I recall was arguing that tax cuts would fully pay for themselves. But rather, the argument was that if the government were to cut taxes by, say, one hundred dollars, it might not cost the government one hundred dollars in lost revenue. That's because lower taxes would spur greater economic activity that taxable incomes and therefore tax receipts would rise to partly offset the cost of that $100. So perhaps the tax cuts cost the government $50 on a dynamic basis or 80 or 20 or 99. I don't know, it depends on which tax cut and we can leave that to the economist to debate. So why am I rehashing this old and cold battle over dynamic scoring of tax bill- bills? Well, in what was mostly a case of first impression, Republicans used dynamic scoring to present a slightly reduced cost of the TCJA. Though I think the relatively modest dynamic effect was a disappointment for many longtime proponents of that theory. Now, flash forward to today, this coming infrastructure bill offers Democrats a good opportunity to try and use dynamic scoring to their advantage this time. Not necessarily for tax cuts, but for the infrastructure spending itself. Just like tax cuts, one can argue that infrastructure spending has a favorable dynamic effect, that if the government spends $100 in infrastructure spend on a dynamic basis, it might not cost the government $100. Instead, because of the enhanced economic activity from that spend, the cost might be 50 or 80 or 20 Again, let's leave it to the economists to argue over. So will Democrats fully embrace dynamic scoring for the coming infrastructure legislation? I don't know. But the precedent of the TCJA helped clear the path for them to do so if they want to. And wouldn't that be an interesting twist to see the parties reverse their positions on the virtues of dynamic scoring in just four years? Well, that's all we have time for today. With that, thanks again for tuning in to Catching Up on Capitol Hill. And please don't forget to submit your questions, your comments, and your suggestions to our inbox. Take care, and I hope to see you soon.